Hello and welcome to Unproduced and Unadapted. Have you ever watched a movie and thought, I wish that character got more screen time? Or maybe that character's backstory is way more interesting than our heroes? Or even, my god, they didn't include my favourite character from the book. Well, you've come to the right place. We're here to talk about the sequels, prequels, spin-offs and adaptations they should have made. We're talking sidekicks tragically overlooked, villains done wrong, background characters that stole the show, and characters missing from adaptations. We'll also discuss all those books that haven't been adapted yet, as well as all of those movies that set up the sequel, and then we never got it. Each episode, we'll discuss a different movie and character or set of characters, and explain why we think they should be the star of their own show. We talk potential storylines, dream casting, and pitch our own missing movie. This goes without saying, given we're talking about movies, but just in case. Spoilers from the outset, for this and every episode. On this episode, we will be talking about Jaws, the original summer blockbuster movie that made most of the world too scared to go into the ocean. In particular, we'll be talking about Captain Quint, the grizzled seasoned shark hunter who is hired by Chief Brody to help catch the man-eater. So sit back and enjoy my ramblings about Jaws. Okay, let's do a quick rundown of the basics for the movie. It was released in 1975 and was directed by Steven Spielberg. The screenplay was written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb and was based on Benchley's book of the same name. Benchley was actually thrown off the set after objecting to the famous climax of the movie where the shark is blown up and he was eventually fired by the studio after they felt he was watering down the story with too many subplots involving romance, affairs and the mafia. The main cast is Roy Scheider as Chief Brody, Richard Dreyfus as Hooper the ichthyologist, I love that word, Lorraine Gary as Ellen Brody, Murray Hamilton as Vaughan, the mayor of Amity, and of course Robert Shaw as Captain Quint. The cinematographer was Bill Butler, who later worked on Grease, a bunch of the Rocky movies and Hot Shots, which we may have to do an episode on, because it's great fun. The music, including the classic Jaws theme, was created by the one and only John Williams. A quick aside, I'm going to be throwing a lot of names at you on every episode. If you check the show notes out for this and every episode of Unproduced and Unadapted, there will always be a link to a full episode transcript. In there, you'll find links to IMDb profiles and the like for every actor, director and every film and TV show I mention. You can then check them all out and see what you think of my suggestions. Jaws had a budget of $7 which sounds like nothing, but it is about $35 million when adjusted for inflation, which, honestly, is still nothing for a movie of this scope. Hell, a 30-second Super Bowl advert probably costs more than that these days. But this was Spielberg's second movie so that's a lot of money for an up-and-coming director. The film ended up grossing $260 million on its original release, making it the highest-grossing movie of all time in the US, until Star Wars came out two years later. It was so big that they released Jaws again the following summer, and again in 1979, and it broke box office records pretty much everywhere it was released, and ended up making $472 million worldwide. Adjusted for inflation, that would be $1.2 billion, making it the seventh highest grossing movie of all time. It's difficult to explain just how big this movie was when it came out. It really was the original summer blockbuster. 
67 million people in the US went to see it when it first came out, with people queuing for hours and hours when it was first released. When it was first shown on British television, six years later, it became the second most-watched film, just a few hundred thousand viewers shy of the total that watched Live and Let Die in 1980. Clearly, the draw of a killer shark is just a little shy of the draw to see Roger Moore in his first Bond movie. And those records still hold today. Over 23 million Brits tuned in to watch those movies, and the only things that beat those two movies in terms of British viewers are things like The Moon Landing, The 66 World Cup, and Princess Diana's Funeral. We actually nearly lost the original Jaws footage because it was filmed on the notoriously short-lived Eastman film stock. This shoddy physical film that studios used to use in the 1970s because it was cheap. The film faded so quickly that when the film was first released on home video in 1985, the movie had to be fully recolorized. The same thing actually happened to Star Wars. The versions we have now, that you can buy on Blu-ray or stream, have been expertly renewed and they look incredible. If you've not seen Jaws for a few years, you really should go and watch it. It looks beautiful. Go on, I won't mind. Go watch it right now. So what's Jaws all about? Well, the official plot goes like this. When a killer shark unleashes chaos on a beach community off Long Island, it's up to our local sheriff, a marine biologist, and an old seafarer to hunt the beast down. That is great. Short, sharp, to the point. I love it. It gives you everything you need. In fact, most Spielberg movies tend to have these really good, to-the-point plot lines. I wonder if that, being able to boil a plot down so succinctly, is what helps make his movies so great. They're inherently simple to understand, and can appeal to pretty much everyone. Also, I love that they use the word beast and not shark at the end. It adds a bit more gravity to it. The taglines for this movie were such a mix. You have the two famous short ones, You'll Never Go Into the Water Again, and See It Before You Go Swimming. And then you have a longer one that I love, Amity Island Had Everything. Clear skies, gentle surf, warm water. People flocked there every summer. It was the perfect feeding ground. I love that one. But then there are some awful ones, like this doozy. On the 4th of July, fishing season will open. On you. That is just terrible. How is that ever put on a poster? Speaking of the posters, the classic poster with the shark coming up from the bottom and going straight for the swimmer is amazing. It was designed by Roger Castell. He also made the classic Empire Strikes Back poster with Han and Leia on it. This Jaws poster has to be one of the most iconic and instantly recognisable designs. Up there with probably like Jurassic Park, the red lettering at the top and the font they chose is all great and really pops against the white, the muted blue and the grey of the shark. There's actually another poster where the shark is coming out of the water and there's a young swimmer in the shark's mouth. It's not as good, but I still think it's kind of great. Also, you may be picturing a poster with a woman water skiing and the shark coming up behind her, but it turns out that is for Jaws 2. I could have sworn that was the original movie, but turns out we didn't get as many posters back in the day as we do now so there aren't as many variations. These days, we get dozens of poster designs, most with just lots of big floating heads. So if you hadn't already guessed, I love Jaws. I think it's one of the greatest films ever made. I know I'm not alone out there. Most people love Jaws. It has everything. It's got action, suspense, drama, comedy. You really care for the characters. It's not just a creature feature like a lot of the knockoffs and sequels that came after it. 
in those, it's just people running away, or swimming, I suppose, from a shark. But the original Jaws, it pulls you in a bit, bit by bit. Hell, it's over an hour into this two-hour movie before we see the shark. That's incredible. Most movies like this would throw the shark, or the crocodile, or the squid, or the piranha, or the megalodon at you right away. But no, not in Jaws. Here we have things like the dock being destroyed, or buoys rocking in the ocean, or the barrels being dragged through the water that stand in for the actual shark. Now is that a filmmaking decision by Spielberg to build suspense for the big shark reveals, or because Bruce the animatronic shark was notoriously difficult to work with and was broken more often than not? I think it's probably a healthy mix of both. Multiple shots in Jaws are very similar to those in Creature from the Black Lagoon from 1954, such as the underwater viewpoint of the creature and the shark as we see people swimming on the surface of the water. Those shots are there to purposefully build suspense. And Jaws is all about the suspense. And then the excellent payoff when we finally see the shark. Or, to paraphrase Captain Quint, all 25 feet and 3 tons of him. But from what I could dig out when researching for this episode, it really did end up being a necessity during filming to limit the use of the shark, because it simply wouldn't work. I think Spielberg probably would have included the shark more if he could, but he simply couldn't. And what we end up with is a really suspenseful movie, where the shark actually only has four minutes of screen time. In a two-hour movie. That's incredible. This movie started the entire shark terror subgenre of filmmaking, which is still going on today, with the Open Waters movies, 47 Meters Down movies, the Sharknado movies, The Shallows with Blake Lively, which I really enjoyed, Deep Blue Sea, which we may have to do an episode on, The Meg with Jason Statham, and so on and on and on. All of just four minutes of shark screen time. One thing I did discover when researching Jaws is that the famous line, the line everyone knows, you're gonna need a bigger boat. Well, it was not scripted. It was ad-libbed by Roy Scheider. The version in the movie doesn't look ad-libbed, so I'm guessing he said it, they liked it, and they reshot it. In fact, when a Midwestern audience was shown an early cut of the film, they were so shocked by the pop-up scare that occurs when the shark appears when Brody is throwing Chum off the boat, that their reactions drowned out this iconic line. After reviewing the taping of the moment, the filmmakers extended the sequence, adding another 35 feet of physical film to give the audience enough time to recover and then enjoy Brody's line. That is an excellent example of filmmaking and learning from your audience. So we have to talk briefly about the actual Jaws sequels. They're bad. They're really, really... They're shit. Jaws 2 is bad. It follows the now classic strategy of let's do the same but bigger for the sequel. It's basically Jaws again with some of the original cast but not the best ones, namely Hooper and Quint obviously. And it just rehashes the same plot points, some characterizations, and near enough the some of the same scenes, but all done badly. It does have probably the best tagline though, just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, which I'll be honest, I always associate with the first movie, but that obviously doesn't make sense. Anyway, Jaws 2 is bad. Jaws 3D is, well, also bad. Originally, it was going to be called Jaws 3 slash People 0, so I think that tells you everything you need to know. It also has the worst tagline, the third dimension is terror. Yeah, 
the only memorable bit is Dennis Quaid as one of Chief Brody's sons, and it's it's really bad. Jaws the Revenge is the worst. It's boring and it's dumb. The shark is psychically linked to Ellen Brody or something and swims all the way from Amity to the Bahamas to get revenge or something. Michael Caine is in it though, so that's good. And it's not in 3D, so I suppose that's good. It does have a pretty good tagline though. This time it's personal, which sounds cliche now, but it was probably the first popularised use of that phrase, so it gets half a point for that. Actually, there's a really good book out there about all of these Jaws films that may be of interest to you. It's called Jaws Unmade, The Lost Sequels, Prequels, Remakes and Rip-Offs by John LeMay. It goes through all the sequels we got, the rip-offs that came after, and some of the crazy ideas that the movie makers had, like including megalodons and weird alien orbs. I'll link it in the notes. It has some great info and a lot of behind-the-scenes photos that I think are great fun. In Jaws, you're watching three excellent characters, Chief Brody, Hooper the Scientist, and Captain Quint, who are just wonderful together. The chemistry between the three of them is just great, especially when they're on the boat hunting for the shark and they're getting drunk and comparing scars and telling stories. They're just great characters. Actually, that brings me onto the book, because in the book, pretty much everyone is a terrible person. There's just no one in it you root for, so you kind of just want the shark to eat everybody. I think Spielberg said something similar when asked about the book, so obviously they had to change that for the film. We need a hero. We need someone to root for. Jaws was a massive hit as a book. Apparently, because Spielberg and producers bought hundreds of copies of the book and sent them out to reviewers and opinion makers at the time to drum up interest because the film was coming out the next year. There are a few minor changes between the book and the film, like name changes, Brody having fewer kids, and the death of an old person in the book. But the book goes into so much more detail behind the economic woes of Amity, and why people are reluctant to close the beaches. I honestly don't think we need that in the movie. It comes across in the movie that this is a seaside town and it's heavily reliant on tourism like they all are. In fact, the book has a whole subplot about how the mayor of Amity, played by Murray Hamilton in the movie, actually owes a load of money to the mob. And that's partially why he's reluctant to close the beaches and lose money. And I just don't think any of that is necessary. In the book, Brody and his wife Ellen kinda hate each other. In the movie, though, they seem quite happy. In the book, Ellen ends up having an affair with our resident ichthyologist, Hooper, but that is completely missing in the movie, and I think that was a good decision. It's irrelevant to the plot, and probably just included in the novel to sex it up a bit. And in the book, Hooper actually gets eaten by the shark. As in the movie, he goes down into the shark cage, but unlike the movie, in the book, the shark breaks the cage and then eats him. I think it would have been a big mistake to kill Richard Dreyfuss in this movie. He's so snarky, and I love it. So it was a good decision on that change, I think. One of the famous changes is how the shark dies. Peter Benchley famously hated the idea of Brody shooting and blowing up the compressed air tank and killing the shark. He thought it was too over the top. In the book, the shark just dies from being harpooned earlier by Quint, and that is a little lame. Apparently, Spielberg even considered having Chief Brody kill the shark, only to look up and see a load of other fins coming towards him. Now that's kind of cool, but it's something you'd expect from a Sharknado movie or a Piranha movie. Not Jaws. Well, not this Jaws. Honestly, 
Jaws is probably one of the rare cases where the movie is better than the book. Okay, on to the start of our potential prequel spin-off, Captain Quint. In the book, Quint barely speaks. He's basically just Ahab. He just wants to hunt because he's kind of a dick. The movie version of Quint, though, is so much better. We get the USS Indianapolis backstory, we get loads of excellent dialogue, and a wonderfully gruff performance from Shaw. Also, in the book, Quint doesn't get eaten by the shark. He's simply caught up in the rope that is attached to the barrels and the shark drags him underwater, and he just disappears. Now that is a horrible way to go, but the movie version of his death is obviously, well, more cinematic. Now, that story that Quint tells about his experience aboard the USS Indianapolis is a fictionalised version of an actual World War II event. Apparently the majority of the dialogue in the film was written by Shaw. It's actually a really interesting story in itself, even when you remove the whole shark bit. The ship was on a secret mission and was carrying the uranium that would go into the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. It was hit by torpedoes from a Japanese submarine, but because it was on a secret mission, it was so far away from Allied ships that help simply couldn't reach it. 300 members of the 1200 crew went down with the ship, and the rest were left adrift for days, with hundreds dying of exposure, dehydration, drinking salt water, and some from shark attacks. There was even a daring rescue attempt when a flight crew landed against orders and picked up 56 survivors, with some even lashed to the wings with parachute cord. It's honestly quite an incredible story. There have been a few adaptations, including a 2016 film, USS Indianapolis, Men of Courage, starring Nick Cage and directed by Mario Van Peebles, who is probably most well-known for his directing in TV and for actually starring in Jaws, The Revenge. Now that movie isn't great. It's kind of bad. It focuses way too much on a love story, and not the actual events. It's like Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, but you know, less visually impressive. Now, in Jaws, we're led to believe that Quint became a shark fisherman because of his experience on the Indianapolis. He saw so many of his crewmates get eaten by sharks that he starts hunting them to, we assume, get revenge and even things up a bit. We see his house, his business, filled with shark jaw trophies, hundreds of them, mirroring the hundreds of men he says were killed by the sharks. At one point, he also says that he'd rather drown than die by shark. He says something like, I'll never wear a life jacket again. But then he obviously gets eaten, so that's poetic? Ironic? It's good filmmaking, that's what it is. Okay, so on to our potential sequel, prequel, or spin-off ideas. What would we like to see? Who would we recast? Who do we want to direct and write? And are we talking about a movie, a TV show, a comic book, or maybe anime? Honestly, I'd take all of the above. It has to be a prequel, obviously, because Quint dies in Jaws, and we want to know more about his past. But what format we get this prequel in, I'm actually quite open. I want to say a movie, but other movies in the Jaws franchise are kind of rubbish. And Jaws The Revenge, the fourth sequel, may have completely ruined the Jaws franchise for people, other than the original, obviously. So if we're not doing a movie, how about a TV show? Nothing excessive, like a 21-episode series or anything, but a mini-series. Three or four episodes, just enough to touch on the key parts of Quint's past and show his progression into the prolific shark hunter we meet in Jaws. I think that would work really well. Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment have signed a big deal with Netflix, so chances are we'd see it there if this was to ever get made, 
But if I'm honest, I'm picturing something on Apple TV+. Both have money to burn, and Netflix has made some wonderful shows, but shows like For All Mankind, Foundation, and Greyhound, the Tom Hanks naval war movie, make me think that Apple TV Plus would know kind of how to do this right. So who could we cast? If you look at photos of Robert Shaw when he was young, you just see this great square jaw, and then in Jaws he has the mutton chops and the moustache and the wild look. So we need someone who can pull off all of that. My first thought was Richard Madden better known as Rob Stark from Game of Thrones, or Icarus from Marvel's Eternals, or David from the incredibly tense BBC show Bodyguard. He's got the jawline, and he's always looking neat and sharp like he does in Cinderella, so he could definitely pull off the military look that we need for a young Quint in the Navy. I just don't think he could pull off the crazy, grizzled, older Quint just before the events of Jaws. I also don't know if he can do a really good American accent. So, hmm, if not him... What about Michael Rooker? He's possibly the most grizzled actor we have at the moment. I think that would be some great casting. I love Michael Rooker. He's great in the Guardians movies, the Suicide Squad, the Walking Dead. And if you look at him in Days of Thunder, we definitely have a good young Quint. But that's 30 plus years ago now. But he would be a good older Quint. Another option is Michael Fassbender. Stick him in a World War II military uniform which we've basically seen him in in Band of Brothers, and we could have a good Quint when he was on the USS Indianapolis. He may be a smidge too old now, though. I'm not sure. Quint would have been, what, early 20s during World War II, so I'm not sure Fassbender could pull that off. Stick him in an old baseball cap, or a bandana around his head, give him the wild hair, which Fassbender does quite well, and give him some mutton chops, and you definitely have Quint just before Jaws, though. Yeah, he could definitely play a later Quint, I stand by that. So if not Fassbender for a younger Quint, who? Someone younger, but also able to play both ages? 20-something Quint and 40 or maybe 50-something Quint? That's a tough ask. Jamie Bell could be a good option. He's been in a few things lately, like Rocket Man, where he's been fully clean-shaven. And he looks quite young, maybe late 20s. And then I've seen photos of him with a full beard, and he could pass for 40s, maybe. Add in the mutton chops and some makeup, and we could have a convincing Quint at both ages, I think. That would be pretty fun, and I really do like Jamie Bell. We could do something a bit interesting and go with KJ Apper or Archie Andrews from Riverdale. He's got the jaw and he's young enough, and I really think he could pull off being in the Navy in World War II. He's got a classic kind of look about him, and I think if you give him a sensible 40s haircut, he'd fit right into that period and would look like a young Quint maybe more so than a clean-shaven Billy Elliot. But he obviously can't pull off Quint when he's older, when he's living in Amity hunting sharks and brewing moonshine and taking tourists out on charters. So I'm thinking we have Appa and Fassbender, or Rucker. That has been done. We've had some excellent movies that have featured two actors playing the same character, but at different ages. We've had James McAvoy and Patrick Stewart as Professor Xavier in X-Men, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis as Joe in Looper, River Phoenix and Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones in Indiana Jones, and of course Robert De Niro and Marlon Brando as Don Vito Corleone in The Godfather. Yeah, I think that could work. Apa for two episodes covering the events of the USS Indianapolis, him surviving and making it to Amity, then cut to one or two episodes set maybe 15-20 years later with Fassbender or Rucker playing the grizzled, drunken Quint that we know. I think that would be great, 
I'd watch the hell out of that. I'm now wondering if there's anyone else from the original movie that we'd need in this prequel spin-off TV show that we're building here. We know Hooper, Richard Dreyfuss' character, wasn't on Amity before the original movie, so we don't need him. Or Brody and his family, because they're new to the island. So that leaves Vaughan, the future mayor of Amity, played by Murray Hamilton. We could see him as a young guy when Quint first arrives at Amity, and then we transition to an older Vaughan when Fassbender takes over. Maybe we see Vaughan canvassing for his run for mayor. Does he try to win Quint's vote? Is Quint a problem in Amity? I would imagine so. So is Vaughan canvassing to do something about Quint and the two butt heads? That would be interesting. It would make the fact that Vaughan turned to Quint in the movie to help catch the shark a much bigger deal. I quite like that. I think that sounds a bit fun. So who could we cast? Well, Vaughan is a politician. He's a talker. We need someone who can spin any situation and talk themselves out of it. I think we need Adam Brody. Or, you probably know him best as Seth from The O.C. He's the goofy, overly chatty character we get in a few movies like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which we may also have to do an episode on now that I think about it. And he's in The Kid Detective. I really think if we put him in some 60s clothes, maybe those crazy pattern suits that Murray Hamilton wore in the film a lot, I think he would be a great young Vaughn. I think that would really work. If we're doing this, we may as well go all in, and I think it would be fun to also have a young Mrs. Kintner, the mum of the young boy that dies. She's played by Lee Fierro in the original movie. And we could have a young Deputy Hendricks, played by Jeffrey Kramer. He's the cop that finds the remains of the first victim on the beach. I think having them featured, maybe just bit parts, would be a fun nod to fans of the original movie. Honestly, we could probably cast anyone in these two roles, as I don't expect them to be huge roles. But this is our missing movie, or TV show, I suppose. So we want the right cast. So for Mrs. Kintner, I think Carrie Coon from The Leftovers, Fargo and The Sinner could really work in this role. She kind of looks like Lee Fierro. She has the kind of same straight mouth. And for Deputy Hendricks, we need someone a little lighter. Hendricks wasn't goofy by any stretch, but his reaction to finding the remains on the beach, it's some levity to the role. This makes me lean towards someone who can pull off a lighter character, perhaps. My first thought, and now I can't get past it and think of anyone else, is Sam Rockwell. I freaking love Sam Rockwell. He's just great as Justin Hammer in the Iron Man movies. He's brilliant in Three Billboards outside Emming, Missouri and in Moon. And he is fantastic in Seven Psychopaths. And it was that last one that actually got me here. It would be a bit part, but I'd love to see Sam Rockwell pop up in a few scenes. Spielberg has apparently told producers and studios a number of times that he will not allow a remake of or reboot of Jaws. But does that mean no prequel spin-off TV show? I don't know. Apparently his original idea for Jaws 2 was to focus on Quint's time on the USS Indianapolis. So I think this could actually work. He'd probably produce, not direct, simply because he's never really directed a TV show before. Well, not really. Not since he directed two episodes of Amazing Stories back in 1985, one starring Kevin Costner and Kiefer Sutherland, which is kinda cool, but I think he'd be heavily involved. TV directors are tricky. A TV miniseries might have five or six directors. Game of Thrones had 18 directors across its entire run. Speaking of Game of Thrones, David Nutter, who directed nine episodes, could definitely do this. 
He's also directed episodes of Homeland, The Pacific and Band of Brothers, Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, which I love, and The X-Files and The West Wing, two of my favourite shows. He could definitely do this. Those are some of the best TV shows ever made. And there's the obvious comparison between The Pacific and Band of Brothers and the USS Indianapolis plotline we're interested in. Or maybe Timothy Van Patten. He directed 18 episodes of Boardwalk Empire, which I think would have a very similar feeling to the show I have in mind, with the same kind of era and aesthetic. He also directed episodes of Game of Thrones, The Pacific, as well as Rome, The Sopranos, Deadwood. Again, some of those are my favourites, and are some of the best TV shows ever made. Another director that I think could work is Mikhail Solomon. He's directed episodes of, again, Band of Brothers, Rome, The Andromeda Strain, The Expanse, Six, and Pompeii. All of those have a similar kind of dramatic theme running through them, but they cross a number of genres, so speak to his range. As you can see, there's a bit of a theme. All these directors worked on the biggest historical drama shows. I think any one of them, or a combination, would make an excellent Jaws prequel TV show. As for a writer, you could go with Bruce C. McKenna, who wrote Band of Brothers in the Pacific. There's a theme here, I'm sure you've noticed. Both those shows were produced by Spielberg, so there's an obvious link. And there's history there between him and the directors. I feel like this is how this industry works, so this is how you get these things made. But, in terms of writing, I'm thinking Michael Hurst. He created and wrote The Tudors and Vikings. He's worked on the two Elizabeth movies starring Kate Blanchett, and has a number of other historical movies and TV shows in the works. His speciality is clearly historic fiction, and I think he'd be great for this. I'm not thinking anything too dramatic, especially the Fassbender episodes. The USS Indianapolis episodes would obviously be dramatic, and he can definitely write that. Vikings is a wonderful show with so much drama and moody characters, and then intense battle scenes. I really think he could do a great job for our Jaws spin-off TV show. Okay, I think that's it. We have our stars, KJ Apa and Michael Fassbender, or maybe Michael Rucker, and then Adam Brody, Carrie Coon, and Sam Rockwell. We have our writers and directors, mostly Band of Brothers alumni, as well as Michael Hurst, and our four-part Jaws Captain Quint prequel TV miniseries is set to air on Apple TV+. Well, maybe. Someday. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unproduced and Unadapted and that it's got you thinking about all of those potential sequels, prequels, spin-offs and adaptations. Our next episode will focus on Stargate. We'll discuss the 1994 ancient Egyptian action-adventure sci-fi classic and all of the sequels and spin-offs we got and we'll pitch our own reboot with a whole new cast and director-writer combo. And after that, I have quite a few episodes lined up, so hit subscribe and join me for those. We'll have episodes on Harry Potter, Cabin in the Woods, Hunger Games, Jurassic Park, Tremors, The Fifth Element, Underworld, Speed, and The Little Mermaid. We'll have Halloween specials, Christmas specials, comic book specials, and many, many more. There'll be something there for everyone. In fact, there'll be a bit of a teaser for upcoming episodes on Twitter soon, so look out for that. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, send them my way on Twitter at, at @unproducedunadapted or email me at unproducedunadapted at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode. Bye.